0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the
1: engine of discovery and innovation. If you take any device today, any outcome today, if you trace back, let's pick for example, the cell phone or even this device that we are having this conversation, every aspect of this device, every aspect of the communication that we are having are all traceable to work that NSF has funded 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. All of this innovation that has happened where the basic research at that time never thought that this was going to serve Punch and Alan having a conversation about science.
0: <laughs> it all led to this. <laughs> it all led to this. That's Dr. Setaraman Panchanathan, better known happily as Dr. Punch. He's recently been installed as head of the NSF, the National Science Foundation. That's the government agency responsible for fully a quarter of all the money spent supporting basic research in America's colleges and universities. And he's a firm believer in basic research as the driver of innovation. This is so great that you could join me today because I I really am looking forward to great things from you as you head the National Science Foundation. The thing that I love is that you seem to be really focused on three things that I think are so important, inclusiveness, innovation, and basic science. The inclusiveness part is so taken for granted. The idea that a lot of people have that it's something good to include, but not that it's a source of enrichment. And I think you see it that way, don't you?
1: You You're absolutely correct. The way I see inclusion is enrichment empowerment there is unbelievable talent across our great nation as I come from Arizona I have seen this firsthand what talent can do if only you bring that out with the right set of circumstances and opportunities and if you do that this talent can serve us very well and of course it serves them very well because you have really been instrumental in bringing the spark out and inspiring the talent. This talent transcends socioeconomic spectrum and geographies. I want people to understand the talent is not just resident in metros, in urban areas, or restricted to a few parts of the nation. It's everywhere, we all know that. Then I feel we are duty-bound to make sure that we bring out the talent at scale and at speed.
0: You have a wonderful story about a student Tell me that story again. I want to hear that
1: again. I would love to tell you a story. And this is a story of a student. His name is David Hayden. He's a visually impaired student. I started a research center several years ago as a faculty member at Arizona State University. And one day, and this center is focused on designing technologies, devices, and environments for assisting individuals with a range of disabilities. Alan, I'll tell you, at the end of it, I'll tell you what the word disability really means to me now. But before I get to that, the story of the student, David walks into my office one day and he tells me, "Punch, I have a problem. I'm a visually impaired student and I see that you're trying to design devices and technologies to help individuals to be successful in their careers and their educational endeavors. I said, yes. He said, I'm a double major in math and computer science. I have just finished my freshman year. And I'm already facing difficulties because as I sit in the very first row in my class and I'm watching my lecturers talking about step one to step n in a math problem or in the algorithmic sense, step one to step n in a computer science course, I feel I'm falling behind. I'm a smart student. I'm motivated, but I worry that I might not be able to be successful. How can you help me? I said to David, David, instead of me helping you with a gadget or a device, how about you coming in and working in the center, the research laboratory, with other students, doctoral students, master's students, undergraduate research students like you, I even have some high school students who are in my lab who are all designing these devices together, and they are from multiple disciplines, ranging from engineering, special ed, psychology, cognitive science, um, you know, speech and language, all of those expertise areas being brought together. Why don't you be part of the team? Who better understands the impediment that you face than you, David? And therefore, the innovation that will come out from a first-hand experience will be a lot more powerful than anybody can unleash. Therefore, he took my challenge. This is a freshman student in undergraduate year. He joined my my center. Soon enough, he put together a device, a laptop PC, and this we are talking about the year 2007 when the technologies were not even as exciting as it is today. He built this USB interface device to a camera off the shelf camera, and he used to take this device to the classes. The lecture that was not accessible to him he was able to get it through this camera into his laptop and he was able to adjust the pan, tilt, zoom of the camera to be able to get this lecture so that he'll be able to see it. And he was visually impaired, but he could see it. He was legally blind, but he could see things at a very close distance. He started then perfecting this device. He did something very clever. He split the screen logically into two parts. On the left-hand side was his video coming in. On the right-hand side, he developed a notes interface. He started taking down his notes and linking it up with the video clips and images that he would capture. And he had this fantastic set of course notes that his sighted counterparts will come and tell him, David, you have the best course notes in the class. Will you please share it with us?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, and the notes were so good. It sounds like the notes were so good because mm. The note was right there at
1: the moment of the, of the lecture where it mattered. Exactly. And then he did something uh, even more. He said to me, "Punch, I want to now replicate this device and give it to other visually impaired students to take to the classes. And then thereby they give me feedback on what works, what could be better, user feedback. He perfected this device. And sure enough, in the junior year, he worked with College of Design students in designing the best prototypes ergonomically well put together prototypes that he then took it to a competition called the Microsoft Imagine Cup competition. It's a worldwide competition of ideas. He submitted his prototype and he won the regional competition where he beat students from Stanford, Berkeley of all levels, and then went to the national competition, beat students at that level went to the world competition. There were 325,000 entries in 11 categories. One of them was a touch and tablet category where his entry belonged. He called me one one morning at 3 a.m. from Poland and said to me, Dr. I won the world competition.
0: Ah, (laughs) That's fantastic. And he started a company to...
1: Yes, he started a company to design this device so that other visually impaired students can benefit from that. He then went on to MIT to pursue, everybody wanted him as a PhD student. He had an NSF graduate fellowship. He went to MIT, finished his PhD, and will soon be a faculty member. What a great role model he will be, that people can show that when you participate, and this goes back to the earlier point you made, Alan, when you get this diversity of perspectives, when you get this firsthand perspective of facing obstacles and challenges, now you get unbelievable empowerment and enrichment of the individual and, therefore, the enrichment of the outcomes.
0: It's wonderful. He has the the knowledge of the problem that no one else has. He has the ability to test it as it gets better, the way no one else has. And he has the motivation to see it through to, to a happy conclusion. And I love this story, too, because it shows your approach to teaching, you make it come out of them. You develop their own innovative spirit rather than asking the question, can you solve this for me? You, ask, you, get, you get them to ask the question, how can I solve
1: this? Exactly. And, and so, you know, I, I promised you that at the end I will tell you about the word disability. Alan, the way I have reframed my own thinking with this wonderful experience working with individuals like David in the lab is it is not disability in that sense that we think about it. It is a range of ability. Mm -hmm. We all function in the range of ability. With age, I am finding that I have visual disability and hearing disability, and sometimes even motor disability, possibly. So all of us work in this range of ability. And at different points, in different circumstances, different environments, we exhibit that. And so any assistive device that helps not only David, that now becomes part of the general group of solutions that are available for people facing any challenges in the visual realm, visual disability.
0: You remind me of the coming flood of human computer interfaces that we're already beginning to experience. How extreme is that going to get in the near future, do you think? How how much hooked up to computers will we be more than wearing a watch or carrying an
1: iPhone? I envision a future where computing devices will seamlessly and ubiquitously be part of the environment, on body which we see, sometimes even in body. In body. Yes, because you know we have these pills that people swallow that have cameras that image what's going on inside.
0: You know, I, I've been in the movies, but I haven't I haven't had the movies in me yet. <laughs>
1: That's a beautiful way of saying it. I love it. <laughs> I will remember that I will remember that.
0: <laughs> that's, that's what, else? What, what What else can we look forward to?
1: So this, this world, Alan, you could ask, you know, what do we do with this environment that we are getting into? This is what I call a symbiotic relationship between the man and the machine, that we are able to do a lot more things a lot better, a lot faster, and a lot more enriched because we are working together as partners. That's how I see it. It's a fusion of man and machine, but at the end of the day, lifting all the aspirations of man to the next level, the humans to the next level. And that's what technology should be, is how do we help achieve our dreams and aspirations at a much higher level of intensity and much higher scale than we could ever imagine
0: do you think that we need innovation more now than we ever did? And, uh, and if you I see you're shaking your head, why why now more than ever?
1: Because we are surrounded by tremendous challenges that we all see every day. When we wake up, you hear about a lot of challenges that we as humans and as a society face. To me, every challenge is a potential opportunity. And every challenge you solve, be it providing portable, portable water to every place on earth, mm-hmm. or providing vaccines almost on demand for situations like COVID, mm-hmm. whatever that challenge may, that, that we confront right now, by out-innovating that we are able to come up with those solutions in near real time or real time can be exceedingly powerful for the human race. That's what scientific spirit does for The humans. And that's why I'm so excited to be part of an organization that inspires the scientific spirit in people. It
0: was uh, through, I I may have this story wrong, but I believe it was through uh, an NSF sponsored supercomputer that a scientist was able to build a model of a simulation of the HNN1 virus, which
1: was then used to build the model of the COVID virus. Is that right? Absolutely. This was a work done at the University of California, San Diego. She wanted to first create the first moving all-atom replica of a virus. And people asked her, so what are you going to really learn from this? You know, modeling this virus as this 160 million moving atoms. Now, within days of publishing the results, Romy's team was able to immediately pivot and do this with the COVID virus, on the NSF-funded supercomputer now called Frontera, the next generations of supercomputer. So in a sense, you could say that NSF exists because it gives these high-risk, high-reward ideas a real shot. And um, you know that's what you know unbelievable infrastructure that NSF funds, unbelievable people and talent that NSF funds, Unbelievable, high-risk, high-reward ideas, not always thinking about what it means today, but investing in those fantastic ideas can result in solving a problem that you might hardly be able to relate to when you originally envisioned the solution for a different problem.
0: That problem that she worked on sounds so complex. 160 million moving parts. That sounds to me like before you achieve the result you want, you have to face a lot, a lot of failure. And by most of us, failure is regarded as a failure. And yet without enough failures, you don't get a success.
1: That is very uh, aptly put, um, Alan, because that's what basic science research is all about. In fact, I would argue that a failure teaches you a lot more than a success, mm. full outcome. And you go back and rewire yourself rethink the problem, rethink the solution pathway, and then you come back with a much more innovative way of doing it. So I always, as, as a proverbial saying says, the failures are stepping stones to success. It literally is. And you see this in the entrepreneurial world much more frequently. Um, and you want students in universities to be comfortable in knowing that failure is not a bad thing. Mm. And that's why I think having these challenges, competitions, hackathons, these kinds of things as part of the learning environment in universities these days are very powerful. It teaches you to fail and fail gracefully and know that failure is a good thing. And then when you get out of the university, you're not afraid to fail, but you're also equipped enough to be successful much more than what you would have been otherwise. Oftentimes we are so obsessed with students having to be perfect in X, Y, Z, W. And I think we should relax ourselves and allow for such failures. I have found, Alan, and I'm sure you have done this too, it is not always the A-plus students in the university that turn out to be the people that become the most innovative people or the most so-called successful people. And so for us, therefore, to put too much emphasis on just that as the basis by which we Uh, Choose people for certain tasks or, or to judge people in a way that that's how success will be defined in their life is not a good idea. And we need to tolerate more of that. And I think if there's any place that can do that best, it is the United States of America.
0: And what about the NSF? What role do you see it playing in helping make America more innovative?
1: NSF is one of the very few agencies that essentially promote basic research at scale. Basic research, by its very definition, is high-risk. And therefore, that an agency will provide the environment and the resources for people to be able to embark on solving basic research questions is an exceedingly important imperative. If you take any device today, any outcome today, if you trace back, let's pick, for example, the cell phone or even this device that we are having this conversation Every aspect of this device, every aspect of the communication that we are having are all traceable to work that NSF has funded 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. All of this innovation that has happened where the basic research at that time never thought that this was going to serve Punch and Alan having a conversation about science.
0: (laughs) It all led to this. (laughs) It all led to
1: this. It all led to this. That's why I keep telling, reminding people when we talk about the unbelievable work that we are launching on the industries of the future at NSF, I also remind people that we are working today on the future of the industries of the future at Uh, the same time. What we are doing today is going to be the genesis of industries 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. Whoever would have thought a digital library project for two young and our lads being funded by NSF resulted in this unbelievable trillion-dollar company called Google, (laughs) right? And so these are the things that we should be willing to
0: invest in. And with regard to basic research itself, it's often distinguished from other scientific research as being curiosity-driven. And uh, I'm sure a great portion of basic research is pure curiosity. But you... I've, I've heard you say that there's an advantage at a certain point in developing something new where you need basic research that hasn't been done yet. And the prompt that that gives you for basic research in a particular area is curiosity plus satisfying a need, it sounds like. Am I going too far with that idea?
1: No, you are not at all, Alan. It's a great modulation of several things, curiosity-driven, the demand that is out there in terms of a challenge or a problem that needs a solution, and the demand or a challenge that is there from the community, like industry, for example, wanting to build the next generation of wireless technology. Sometimes the challenges make you go and ask the questions that you would have never asked in the first place, by a purely curiosity-driven approach. That's why I always say it's an intertwining of both of them that produces unbelievable innovations and therefore leads us to amazing outcomes.
0: And how about serendipity? The serendipity sounds to me in a way like the opposite of failure. Something unexpected happens. And when it's bad, it's failure. When it's good, it's serendipity. Yes, yes. What, that seems to be the source of a lot of basic knowledge that we have about the universe. We think we're exploring one thing and to find, we find out we're in a whole other cave than where we thought we were.
1: That's very well said. You're absolutely correct. Serendipity results in unbelievable innovations that we never thought. I mean, we, we, we did not go with that in mind. We were exploring, 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 we thought we were going to get the, you know, uh, the coal, but we ended up getting the diamond. So it's just, it's just. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So that's that's what happens. You know, this is an amazing thing. And the basic research, as a as as a as a fundamental core, has a lot more opportunity for serendipity. Even in the process, I find, you know, I would be trying to solve a mathematical equation, and I'll go to sleep, get up in the morning. And then, eureka! You get some other completely, completely different uh, conceptualization that I never even thought about in my normal course of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. It just—it's almost like an intuition, an inspiration, serendipity—that you come up with a very new way of solving it. And that's what makes—you know, this Alan—that's what makes science so exciting, so inspiring. And that is the message that we need to communicate to the children at K to twelve level that they carry that, that spirit of excitement about science. And that's why I'm saying that one of the work that we do in terms of inspiring talent is how do we get the scientific spirit and that spark inspired in our youth, in our children, that they will look at it as, wow, you know, I can do this or I can have this as a tool for the rest of my life for this or that. And I think we have a responsibility and I take that as NSSF responsibility in addition to other folks like Department of Ed and other agencies and uh, you know states and cities and counties all working together to see how we can get this spark ignited in every child that is there in the K-12 system. Wouldn't that be a huge service to the nation? To the world, to humanity. Yeah. Let me ask you one last thing about what we were
0: just talking about. When we get excited about the value of serendipity, it sometimes means that the path we were taking, that we had been funded to take, would ignore, if we followed down that path, would ignore some great chance to discover something big. Does the NSF have a flexibility to acknowledge the introduction of serendipity into a funded project?
1: Oh, absolutely. See, NSF is one of those agencies where when you provide the funds to the investigator to take an idea forward, so they write a strong proposal, they get peer-reviewed, they get funded for the project. But what NSF does not do is then micromanage how that money is being used for for anything other than the fundamental idea being explored Mm -hmm. so that we allow for the the, the the variations in terms of how the process takes, research takes shape and allow for the flexibility that it might take this direction, this might take that direction. And that what comes out of it is the scientific good rather than expecting that it is going to produce this product or this outcome, or every quarter we are going to have a review to check with you what's going on with what you said you will do and is it happening. We don't have those tight boundary conditions. Because the free spirit, the human spirit, the scientific spirit, the intellectual spirit cannot be bounded that way. Because the moment you try to bound it, you have lost some of the innovativeness, some of the serendipitous outcome possibilities. You're losing it by that process. So NSF is one of those agencies that does not do that. To the extent possible, we make sure that people are given, instead of saying it free reign, but enough freedom to be able to explore and do good with it, and therefore, Unbelievable outcomes are achieved because of that spirit.
0: Well, the unbound spirit is alive and well in you. I can see and hear it in your voice. I thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. It really was fun and and inspiring. And I'm glad I can call you Punch.
1: Absolutely, Alan. Uh, It's an honor having watched you in MASH and enjoyed the MASH series without missing any of the episodes as I was going through (laughs) grad school I can tell you, it is such an honor to talk to you. And more importantly, that your passion for science and how scientific spirit can be you know, permeated across the nation. I tell you, I salute you, sir, for all that you do for science. We are so grateful to you. We are honored to have you as a champion and look forward to more such conversations in the future. Thank you so much.
0: Me too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye for now. This has been Science, Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Dr. Ponch was appointed to lead the National Science Foundation this last July after a 30-plus year career at Arizona State University. Most recently, he was ASU's Chief Research and Innovation Officer. There, he championed technologies and devices for assisting people with disabilities, as well as fostering collaborations between academia and industry. You can find out more about Dr. Ponch and the National Science Foundation at NSF.gov. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shed with help from our associate producer, Gene Shermay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big astrophysics, the very small nanoscience, and the very complex neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with the Director of the National Academy of Sciences, Marsha McNutt. In 2010, she headed a scientific team that successfully grappled with the devastating Deepwater Horizon oil spill. That experience gives her optimism that science will again deliver in the current crisis.
1: People were watching for days on end, watching that oily black mess emanate from that broken wellhead
0: into the beautiful Gulf of Mexico. And they were mad.
1: But at the time, no one knew how to control that. And it was a time when science came through and delivered a solution. You know, I I keep looking back on that and say for this current pandemic, science will again deliver. And we can be the heroes of the day as long as we keep our eye on the ball and we don't get distracted by politics.